Dane, it's been cold here in Boulder, Colorado the last few days. Yeah, yeah, but I know you, Spencer. I bet you've still been doing some riding. That's right. I've been trying to stay active, getting out and riding as much as I can. And there's a reason for that, because if you're an active cyclist or a runner or any sort of athlete, you could get a great deal on life insurance with Health IQ. Yeah, they, uh, they're a pretty cool company, and they're really great for people like you and me. You know, 50 miles is its really not that much to get in during a week, even when it gets cold out there. Yeah, if you ride 50 miles a week or more, you'll be eligible for this great rate on life insurance. All you have to go do is go to healthiq.com slash velonews, and you get that free quote. Thanks to Health IQ for sponsoring this episode of the Velonews Podcast. Let's get on with the show. All right, it's the Velo News Podcast. I'm Spencer Paulison coming to you from Boulder, Colorado, here with Dane Cash. And also, via Skype, we have our very own Andrew Hood coming to you from Spain. And guys, before we get going with the meat of this podcast, we want to stop and remember Paul Sherwin, who died Sunday night at his home in Uganda of heart failure. And Paul Sherwin was a very prominent part of the American cycling landscape and the broader cycling landscape internationally because he was a longtime commentator on the NBC Sports Broadcast alongside Phil Liggett. I remember growing up as a kid watching the Tour de France, listening to Phil Liggett and Paul Sherwin call the action, and uh, it really came as a shock that he died at 62. Very sad news. Hoodie, I'm sure that you saw Paul Sherwin quite a bit behind the scenes when you were covering the Tour de France as a journalist all these years. Yeah, that's right. I first uh, met Paul you know, going back into the 90s. Uh, he was already working as a Motorola PR man for a little while there, and then he, he went full-time with uh, the, the race announcing. Uh, he and Phil, you know, 33 years together, I think someone told me that was the longest-running sports commentating duo in television broadcast history. I'm not quite sure if that's true, but it's got to be right up there at the top if it's not. It was interesting, Anadog, for me, just try to, you know, remembering uh, Paul. I mean, I knew him so many years that the funny thing is kind of that I never really knew him as the TV broadcaster because whenever he was at the race broadcasting the race live, you know, I was covering it at the finish line or driving in a car lost somewhere in France. So I only knew him, you know, at the race starts or at the finishes and kind of knew him, you know, off off the TV cameras. And I must say he, he was just as authentic in person as he, as he came across uh, on the broadcast. And that's why I think so many people are so moved and touched by uh, his loss. And it's you know been really emotional to see the, the reaction from fans and, and, and everyone really worldwide. And the guy was just a class act uh, top to bottom. Yeah, there's been a really just a cool outpouring uh, on Twitter, I think, from a lot of the cycling journalists and, and talking about kind of other sides of Paul Sherwin, because so many people do know him as the as the broadcaster for 30 some odd years. The writer Samuel Apt wrote a column, uh, kind of cool, talking about Paul Sherwin's ride uh, at the tour all those years ago. He uh, basically, any other day would have been time cut. He was like 20 minutes behind the time cut, uh, crashed in the first kilometer of the stage and ended up making it to the end. And the uh, jury let him stay in the race. It's a pretty cool story about uh, Sherwin's grit as a rider long before he even became a broadcaster. And kind of a side that I don't know that a lot of people know because he's been a broadcaster for so long. Yeah, that's exactly true. That was the 1985 Tour de France and great story. And it's up on velonews.com if you want to check that out. Another story that we ran about uh, Paul Sherwin on the website was was from you, Hoodie, when you spoke with Phil Liggett after Sherwin's passing. And I tell you, one of my favorite parts of that story, Hoodie, was uh, was something that really illustrated Sherwin's sense of humor, where they had a quiet moment during the race. They were broadcasting, trying to think of something to say. And then they start talking about this sort of random, dilapidated French chateau that the helicopters were flying over and showing footage of. You want to tell me, tell me the rest of that story, Hoodie? 
Yeah, I think this was in the early days of their broadcasting team. And, and like you said, it was some transition stave across, across the middle of France. And there was this old chateau and, and Phil Leggett's just trying to fill some dull time on the broadcast. And and uh, Paul Sherwood just chimes in and goes, oh, yeah, that's where Louis XIV must have stayed. <laughs> and it, and it, became, it became kind of a joke. It's almost like, you know, George Washington slept here. Right. And it was, it was one of those kind of jokes where whenever they saw an old uh, fortress or some sort of chateau, they saw, yeah, that's where Louis XIV used to hang out. <laughs> and now and now they were now they're saying he was remembering how now, as all you guys know, we've been to the tour, they give you a big book that is chock full of all those little anecdotes and those little uh, historical references to every little landmark along the Tour de France route. And all the broadcast guys really rely on that so that every time it comes across the stage on stage 13, they can see actually where Louis XIV did sleep and where you know, all these other things happen in French history or the geology and the, and the, and the uh, you know, for even culinary uh, landmarks for the region. So, you know, those guys used to have to just make it up and they would be talking for God knows hours at a time right. with uh, a bunch of dead time on, on the broadcast. Well, Paul Sherwin will be very sorely missed and um, Tour de France broadcasts are just never going to be the same now uh, with him with him gone. So uh, we're, we're sending our condolences to all his friends and family out there and uh, definitely thinking of Paul Sherwin this week. All right. Now, so Hoodie, you just got back from a little vacation to India, but before that, you had a pretty interesting trip to the Movistar team camp, didn't you? That's right. And I would say uh, India was quite a quite an amazing place. It's not the best place to ride a bike. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be quite suicidal to try to get in a bike there. And uh, between the uh, the traffic and the, and the smog, man, it's, it wouldn't be a great place to ride. Even though there must be some good places to ride, I think up in the Himalaya would be spectacular. But, man. In Rajasthan and stuff, we were. It's like the last thing you want to do is be on a bike. Hey, you but don't, yeah, see, you don't before, see many Indian pro cyclists, do you? Not I, yet. I don't think. Yeah, maybe someday. One maybe day. someday. Maybe but, someday. Yeah. We were actually. We went to a race in India, uh, quite a few years ago. Now it was the 2010 Commonwealth Games. Oh yes. Right. Uh, quite quite an event there. In fact, uh, when I was back in India, I was back in Delhi for a few days, and just thinking about that time, I spent about three weeks in Delhi during that trip. And uh, some crazy stories about the Commonwealth Games where, um, you know, they, they basically had the, the downtown India and they had the, the course there down by where the, the capital is in New Delhi. They built this, this big fence because they were really uh, quite worried about an, a terrorist attack or some sort of disruptions. So they fenced off the entire area where the roadways was. It's like a big 8K loop around the capital there. And uh, evidently, this is a story, I don't know if it's true. But there's just packs of wild dogs that just roam Jeez, the streets oh of India. And so the night before the race, I guess the Indian military went in there and just like, all the dogs were not there the next day. Let's Ooh. just put it that way. Oh, oh God. <laughs> well, I wasn't Ooh, intending boy. to go down this, uh, yeah. this uh, little uh, side alley here, Hoodie. So let's get back to it. <laughs> let's talk about this Movistar team camp. So this is of course the this is of course when when all the riders show up and kind of do the the basic tests and uh, all the preliminaries, getting prepared for the next season. Uh, and Movistar, of course, very important team to talk about because it's home to some of the most prominent Grand Tour riders in the world. That's right. Uh, they've been doing this this meeting, this camp. It's not really a camp; it's more of a meeting, um, uh, kind of along the foothills there in Pampelona. It's a tradition that's in Zue. Sebio and Zue, the, the team manager now and owner of the team at Movistar, they've been doing this for years. I mean, Inzui is going to be celebrating his 40th uh, year in professional cycling this coming 2019 season. So he's been around the block quite a few times. But it's always it's kind of a real, 
laid back uh, meeting. They have uh, their kind of first meetings, looking, you know, kind of going over the, the racing season, looking ahead to the next year. They kind of map out some basic questions about who's going to be racing where. They pose for some photos, get fitted for the new jerseys, do some bike fitting. Uh, it's, it's usually a two or three day meeting. It's not, there's no, there's no real riding that goes on at that camp, but, uh, it's always a good time to have a chance to talk to the riders and talk to the uh, different sport directors. And yeah, some interesting stories are coming out, coming out of there for sure. So talk to us about Nairo Quintana. I really feel like he is the big question mark over at Movistar going into the 2019 season based on how his 2018 season was kind of disappointing. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Nairo, he's, he's been with the team since 2012. He, you know, that's where he started his career. It's been the only team he's been on. And uh, as you said earlier, Spencer, it's it's a contract year for Nairo. So it's going to be a lot of interesting kind of storylines going through Nairo's season this year. It was kind of a flop this past year at the Tour. I mean, he won the stage uh, in the Pyrenees, uh, only the second stage he's ever won in the Tour. So that kind of put a, you know, helped him save his, uh, his, his race. But he never was really a factor in the GC. I, I think he had some problems early in the race and then just, you know, really never was a threat at all, was he? Well, plus that was a really short stage, so I don't think it counts as a full stage win because he <laughs> only raced like whatever sixty kilometers or something. So I mean, come, a half stage I mean, win. come on, that's that, that can't count as much as like a two hundred and thirty <laughs> kilometer stage win. Um, tell him that. <laughs> I don't speak Spanish. Oh yeah, that's maybe you can pass it along. It's all up to you. Okay, not really. So why was he but, so bad? Why was he so bad in twenty eighteen? What happened? Well, yeah, well that that was a big point of the conversation. They didn't really quite know. They said that. Uh, Nairo is feeling good coming into the tour this year. I think he uh, won a stage in the Tour de Suisse. He had some, you know, he said he was all on track coming into the tour. He was uh, had good sensations. The power numbers were good. Is motivated. You know, he came in fresh this year because last year, remember, he did the uh, Giro Tour double when he got second to Dumoulin of the Tour and then imploded at the Giro at the Tour. Second at so the second at the Giro, yeah. Second at the Giro blew up at the at the Tour, and then this year. They wanted him, you know, fresh for the tour, and then he just did not – he could not respond to the accelerations. That's a big question mark. He just can't seem to go with the fast moves like he used to. You know, they sent uh, Valverde, they sent Mikel Landa as well to the tour this year. That was a big storyline for the Tour de France for Movistar, this sort of three-pronged attack. And uh, obviously it didn't work out the way they wanted it. They didn't do very well at all in the, in the general classification. Uh, he has said – Nairo has said he wasn't a huge fan of the three-pronged attack – Kind of got to wonder what Movistar is thinking, though, considering Nairo seemed to be the weakest uh, guy uh, of the, all, all year, basically, of those three. So what do they do? I mean, who, who do they target uh, for the tour? Well, I think the, the, the feeling in the team is you stick with your man. I mean, uh, Nairo, I think, still has the biggest potential to win the tour of those three guys. I mean, Valverde, I think the ship has sailed on, on in terms of him being a GC contender. Uh, and Landa... Uh, there's some people who think that he's a fraud. Gosh, who, who would that be? <laughs> I do, uh, for sure. You can put me on that list. I will say it right here. Mikel Landa, fraud, GC rider. Oh, come on. He's been third at the Giro. He was he missed the podium of the Tour by one second. How can you call it a fraud? Yeah, well, he was never in the lead position, though. He was never leading a team. He, he had no responsibility on his back in either of those races. He was able to just kind of freelance it, and anything he got on GC was just an added bonus. Yeah, I mean... I. I don't think he's a fraud, but I do think Spencer has a point in that he he's never really been a a, a guy who has been in the lead or, or challenging for the actual overall win, whereas Quintana has. Quintana's been close to it uh, a couple of times, and of course he's also won Grand Tours, so he does have that kind of uh, proven track record. It just seems like it's getting further and further into the past every year. 
Yeah, I mean, with with uh, Quintana, you're exactly right. It, it, there's that big question mark. It, is is Quintana one of these riders who perhaps peaked early in his career? We've seen that with other riders who come out gangbusters when they're young. I mean, that's how Nairo was. And he was uh, <laughs> Excuse me, yeah, Schlecks. <laughs> or, you know, like a, a TJ Van Garderen, you know, fifth, twice, very early in his career, and he struggled to match that again, whereas Nairo, well, I mean, you can't put Nairo quite in that same level, but his past two tours have left question marks about his ability to really go at that high-end power and speed in the mountains with the Frooms. And, of course, he always has the handicap of the time trial. Regardless of what happens in 2019, do you think he'd be better off on a different team once his contract is up? Should he be Should he be shopping around? Well, that will be certainly the big talking point. Uh, he was making some comments. He had a Grand Fondo event this past week in uh, Colombia, and he made some veiled comments that he is uh, obviously honoring his contract his last year with Movistar, but certainly put a hint out there that he's going to be looking at other options for the future. You know, who's going to be able to pay for Nairo? Even if he has maybe not a great season this year, he still is a proven Grand Tour winner, still draw a salary of a couple million dollars a year. His Grand Fondo, I wonder I wonder if there's much climbing in that Grand Fondo or if it's just like <laughs> a flat cruise around the, around the sort of beaches and stuff. Hmm. Yeah. Well, so speaking of another rider who is going to be up for a contract, like you said, Mikel Landa, I mean, what are, what are we going to expect from him? I've been seeing storylines that he's doing the Giro and the Tour, and for my money, it just I can't imagine that he's taking on both of those races with the intent of winning both of them for GC. Yeah, you got to wonder maybe if, if he wants to try to get the Giro in his legs before going into the Tour. I mean, some riders like to train. Just a little it's training. Some, yeah. <laughs> ah, no big so deal. getting their health IQ miles. Just a little training. Yeah, health IQ miles. They're 50 miles a day or <laughs> a week. <laughs> well, if you remember, uh, you know, he had that horrible crash at the Classic of San Sebastian. And basically, his second half of his season last year was kind of a wash. So you got to wonder if, you know, maybe he wants to just kind of get that race intensity in his legs. No pressure at the Giro and then race the Tour. I mean, I'm just trying to read his mind because – the big reason last year all the big guns did the Giro Tour double last year was they had that extra week between those two races with the World Cup and the Tour starting a week later. So that's why both Dumoulin and Froome both said that's why we did the double that year because that extra week of recovery helps. That's certainly not the case this year. Uh, when I heard him say that too, I was like, man, you know, what? What are you on? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think there's also the possibility that maybe he goes to the Giro to try to win that race and goes to the Tour as a stage hunter uh, or as a you know top ten kind of hunter while Nairo is the main guy. Uh, Landa still needs to get his Grand Tour win. I mean, he's been up there, he's been battling, but he hasn't had nearly the same kind of uh, top of the podium success as uh, his his two teammates. I mean, even Alejandro Valverde won a Grand Tour many moons ago. People forget. Yeah, I agree with you, Dane. And I just cannot imagine a scenario when Mika Landa and Nairo Quintana both go to the Tour de France and Landa gets the nod as the leader. There's no way. They're, they're going to back Quintana to be the leader at the Tour. And Landa's his best opportunity to try and win a Grand Tour is probably going to be that Giro. But, I mean, frankly, he could be one for the Welta too. But it just depends on how his entire schedule goes. I will say that last year's, or I guess this year's Tour, the most recent Tour was a... Uh, a good advertisement for taking multiple leaders or at least having multiple riders that could step up to be leaders because you don't know 
who's going to crash. You don't know who's going to fall down on a cobbled stage. And, and that did happen. Uh, Chris Boom crashed on the very first stage of the tour. Gary Thomas takes up the reins and goes and wins the thing. Uh, Movistar, yeah, they're three-pronged attack. Obviously, it didn't work the way they wanted. But each one of those guys, Mika Landa and Quintana in particular, crashed really hard. And uh, if their teammates had been up for it and fit, they might have been able to take up the mantle. Obviously, it didn't work out, but it, it is kind of nice to have that second guy if the crash happens in the first week, which we've seen a lot of, uh, especially if you're Richie Port in the last couple of years. Sorry, Richie. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Richie. This is kind of an anti-Richie Port podcast. Oh, come on. Well, we definitely we, love we, we like to give him some grief. We'll see. Maybe next. Maybe maybe, maybe next year. Maybe 2019 is yeah. the year Richie Port wins maybe the tour. Next year. I, hope springs eternal. But back to Movistar. I, we've got to talk about Alejandro Valverde as well, Hoodie. What's uh, what's his schedule going to look like in 2019? I mean, he's the reigning world champion. There's a lot of hype surrounding him. He's And he can do it all, too. He, he could be winning races from February all the way through to October. And it's basically, I think, his calendar. <laughs> <He's> got, <laughs> no big deal. He, he, he wants to really just enjoy this year in the rainbow jersey. He was talking about how emotional he was when he won it, of course. And just for him, how special it's going to be. He said for him to be wearing that jersey at every race that he, he starts this year, except when it's in a time trial. But the big kind of new thing in his calendar this year is he is going to finally race the Tour of Flanders. He certainly doesn't go there with any expectations of winning it, but he said he wants to at least race the Flanders once. He said Robey is off. No way he's going to race Robey, even with the honor of wearing the, the rainbow jersey. He said, I need to gain another uh, eight kilos before he could even try to race Robey. Um, but yeah, I mean, right now, the, the, it seems like uh, he's lining up to do the Giro question mark for the tour and then go to the Welta and then to the Worlds. I really like the idea of Alvarez going to the Tour of Flanders. I mean, he's not going to be the top favorite or in the top five favorites probably, but I wouldn't be that surprised if he came out as a winner. I mean, he, he's got the punchy skill set. He's a really good bike handler. Uh, yeah, cobbles are a really different beast, but if there's anybody that can do it, I I, I wouldn't put it past him. I agree. And I also think it'd be great to see him put on 10 kilos. Ooh. That'd be kind of Ooh, fun. Ooh, yeah. It'd be like a little bit of a, I don't know, you, you could like kind of blend into the Peloton. They might not recognize him. <laughs> I think he's got that so, jersey. So, might stand out. The way he's been partying, maybe he has put on 10 oh. Yeah, what's the reception been like in Spain? Is he getting on uh, late-night TV there? I mean, are uh, are people en- enjoying the fact that Alejandro Valverde uh, won the World Championships? Are they aware of the fact that Alejandro Valverde won Worlds? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it definitely made the news. He, he's in a big spread in one of the Sunday magazines this past weekend. Uh, he has been on a few uh, these little chat shows on the radio. You know, his profile is definitely, um, in many ways, getting his just rewards, I would say, because for a long time, he was kind of overshadowed by Contador, Joaquin Rodriguez, you know, Oscar Friere. And plus, he kind of had, you know, the asterisk of the Operación Puerto. So I think, you know, maybe he wasn't getting uh, as much media attention as some of the other writers in Spain. But since he's won this world and just, you know, how long he's been hanging around, how many years, you know, he won six medals before he won this uh, 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 gold medal with the rainbow jersey. So people know that they know about it. They know how long he's been around and how much he wanted to win the world. So that's resonating with the Spanish public for sure. Wait, you think he was overshadowed by Joaquin Rodriguez? I feel like he was always a bigger star than Rodriguez. Well, he was in his Palmares, but just, in, uh, you know, Joaquin Rodriguez is quite a little media starlet he's quite good talking to the tv and he was he was always quite good with the media so you know whereas is valverde sometimes is not the most uh uh you know cerebral of interviews let's put it that way <laughs> 
Wow, poor Valverde. I think Pirito also had the reputation for being a really attacking kind of rider, and Valverde for quite a long time, people would uh, would really trash on him as a wheel sucker. I mean, that, that they really didn't like his tactics so much. And I think in the last year or two, people I, I just have seen maybe this is just Twitterverse, but people seem to have kind of softened on Valverde's tactics once once they realize just how important it is to do that kind of thing and how much he wins. But yeah, I think people liked uh, Rodriguez because of his style, and, and Valverde maybe didn't have quite that same style. Although his Palmares was better. Yeah, his Palmares are, are a much higher level than uh, Rodriguez. Rodriguez never won a Grand Tour. He won Flash, but he never won Liege. Yeah. Uh, whereas Valverde, you know, cons- you know, he's the king of the Ardennes. He won that uh, Welta. I mean, people now are kind of calling Valverde with this with this uh, world title, you know, the the best all round Spanish rider in, in Spanish cycling history. Whoa. You could say, yeah, you could say, you know, Indurain was the king of the Tour. Contador was the king of the Grand Tours. Friday was the world champion and sprinter guy. But in terms of being able to, as Spencer said, you know, race from February to October and win consistently across all terrains. I mean, we really could argue that, you know, he, he is really one of the all-time best in the whole international peloton. I think it's kind of funny. that This is across all sports. I feel like if you're somebody who comes close to winning, uh, whether it's like a major in, in golf or tennis or a Grand Tour monument in cycling or worlds, if you if you come close six times, you're just seen as a nearly man. But if you come close six times and then you win one, then all of those six times become like this great thing on your Palmares and you're this all-rounder who's amazing. So just that one win, I think, catapults Valverde uh, pretty far in, in the in the Palmares discussion. Yeah, no, I agree with that for sure. And you have to remember, too, you know, Valverde, as you guys pointed out, he, he won that Welta. And I was just making a quick note here. I think there's, I mean, there's definitely less than 10 guys active in the peloton who've won Grand Tours. When you disparage sometimes guys like Landa, it's like, oh, he's only been on the podium. That's pretty elite company even to get on a Grand Tour podium. You look at uh, you know, who's won and who's active in, in uh, Grand Tour racing. You know, you get Chris Froome winning his fair share. Nairo's won a couple. Vincenzo's won all three, but uh, you know there's not really many two other guys who actually won a Grand Tour. So Valverde Dumoulin. is kind of an elite company. Dumoulin. Yeah, Dumoulin, yeah. Sean Yates, Fabio Rue, the other guys. Yeah. So it, it puts it in perspective. You know, Valverde is kind of this guy that could kind of win in all terrain, and and uh, well, people actually often ask you know how he did that, and there's a lot of questions we don't know the answers to. But uh, you know, his his perspective and profile has risen dramatically in Spain for sure. Yeah, and that is why we had you write a really long feature on Alejandro Valverde hoodie for the upcoming issue of Vela News Magazine. So stay tuned for that. That'll be coming out in uh, the next, I think the next issue will be, we'll have the Valverde feature. That should be the January, February issue. And thanks for heading out to that team camp hoodie. It sounds like it was a good time. It sounds like we've really learned a lot about what uh, to expect from Movistar in 2019. All right, guys. Thanks for sending me. All right, we'll have a good night. Catch you later, hoodie. All right, well, it sounds like Hoodie is off to find some tapas and probably some red wine. Meanwhile, here, Dane, we still have a little more to talk about, Aww. and uh, it's your favorite, cy- yeah? cyclocross. Oh, not tapas and red wine. It's no, like, oh, no, okay. we're talking right. cyclocross now. Well, let's just follow up real quick on a couple stories discussed in last week's podcast. Um, first of all, this elite international women's field that we've talked about last week being so strong and so deep. I did a I did a story for velonews.com that went up on uh, Tuesday and has a pretty in-depth examination of why this is happening. Yeah, I, I checked it out, Spencer, uh, and not just because it's my job. I, I really enjoyed it. I think it's got a lot of really cool angles, a lot of different different perspectives and different factors in, in what is kind of bringing about this, this cool 
moment uh, with all this exciting racing that's been going on. Uh, you talked to quite a quite a few different riders and, and just people in the sport, not just riders. You know, we had we have uh, scheduling stuff. We've got Sonicant just for some reason not quite being so dominant. Uh, there's a couple of young riders coming up. I think prize money is a part of it, uh, or, or invitational money is a part of it. So yeah, just all these different factors. It's pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. And you know, one thing that I felt was kind of cool to see is that just kind of connecting some dots, it seems like some of the initiatives that the UCI has been introducing have been helping to cultivate this more competitive women's cyclocross field. And, you know, we've got equal prize money now for C1 and C2 events. And then by the year 2021, they'll have equal prize money at the World Cup races. So that's a great thing. And then also the UCI introduced that under 23 women's category for the world championships. And to me, it seems pretty obvious that once that category came online about three years ago, well, it'll be about four years ago at Worlds this year, uh, it it did seem to be cultivating this young talent. And now a lot of these young riders in their early 20s, now to mid-20s, they're some of the stars of international women's cyclocross. So I, it's, it's nice to see at least some of these changes at least either responding to this this movement or helping to encourage it. Yeah, particularly coming from the UCI, I feel like people really like to drag on the UCI for any number of reasons, and it's often deserved. But Easy target. They they have done some pretty good things, I think, in this area, and, and it's cross and road, too. They've, they've done some nice things that have, I think, made some big improvements across the board in the last couple of years. Definitely. Still a lot of ground to gain oh, yeah. still, I think, when yeah. it comes to women's parity in cycling in general, um, as well as cyclocross. But... Uh, it's headed in the right direction, and it makes for some really exciting racing to watch uh, for us here at home when you pull up the live streams, the World Cup, Super Prestige, and that sort of thing. Speaking of exciting racing, uh, how about the NBX series this weekend? I feel like we talked a little bit last week about how uh, Stephen Hyde, what's going on there? Is he going to be a factor this season? He's been injured. Is he even going to be a contender at national championships? I think we have our answer. Yeah, Dane, and uh, it, it really was an emphatic answer for me, at least. Uh, this last kind of major race of the New England cyclocross season, the NBX Grand Prix in Warwick, Rhode Island, and Stephen Hyde wins both days pretty convincingly. Kerry uh, Werner was in attendance, and for me, he was he was Kerry Werner was one of the favorites for nationals. And now I'm looking at Stephen Hyde saying, "Wow, it's going to be hard to beat this guy because he won both days. Two very different types of races as well. The first day was dry, the second day was quite muddy, and uh, yeah, with nationals coming up in just a couple of weeks in Louisville, Kentucky, um, it, it does look like Stephen Hyde will be a very strong." threat for that Stars and Stripes jersey. Yeah, Cannondale's got to be really happy because they have Stephen Hyde back. Uh, Curtis White still looks strong. Definitely. Uh, I, I think it's it's clear that he's in great shape. Obviously, Stephen Hyde is a really good rider, and it's hard to beat him. But they also have Spencer Petrov back. He was out for a while. Uh, Cannondale had three riders in the top four both days at NBX. That's got to be good for, for Stu, the, uh, the manager on that team. Timing is excellent with Nationals coming up right around the corner. And also, it's looking good for their women's side as well with Katie Keogh winning both days of that NBX Grand Prix as well. And this is every single year we have this sort of conversation where we talk about well, is this finally going to be the year when Katie Compton doesn't win cyclocross nationals? She's done it 14 years in a row now. And uh, Dane, well, I decided we should just ask her for ourselves. Might as well. So I called up Katie Compton last week, and she was a big part of my article, actually, about this uh, story about how women's cyclocross has been so competitive and why the field is so deep. But also, fortunately, we had plenty of time, so she was generous enough to talk to me about where she's at right now with her season and uh, what her expectations are for nationals. And let me tell you this, it's, uh, she's not entirely confident that it'll go her way. 
I feel like, uh, yeah, we do have this conversation every year about it, but I think this year seems a little different. I mean, it really does seem like there are some people that have a chance to be Katie Compton. And also, it's been a really rough season for her. Sure. She's she's had some issues with her asthma. She's had some issues with illness, getting the flu. Uh, just, yeah, not, not very smooth and certainly hasn't had the results uh, at all that she would normally expect, being as she's won many, many World Cup races as, long, as well as any number of other huge international cyclocross events. So here's Katie Compton. All right, Katie Compton, how's it going? You're back in the States from Europe. Yeah, it's going okay. I'm just uh, kind of recovering from the travel and um, trying to get a little rest and final preparation for nationals. Yeah, this is your second season kind of having a home mm-hmm. base over in Europe. And yeah. um, have you kind of been have you kind of been figuring out the system? Is the second year a little easier for you to, to, to navigate? Um. Yeah, like navigate, yes, um, just because we've done it. And now I've, I did um, a lot of the races last year. So this year I know the courses and the parking and kind of know what's in front of me for the uh, the race effort and the course. I think for me it's like yes, last year was really good because I, you know, I was riding well and I was feeling good. This year just it's my worst season yet. So that's probably the, the difference of uh, this year is a lot harder from that perspective. So that's kind of unfortunate, but, you know, that's racing. Yeah, it is. Uh, I've, I've seen some of your posts and, um, you know, read mm-hmm. some of the reports. It sounds like, to a certain extent, the asthma has been giving you trouble this year. Is that right? Yeah, I've just, um, I had, like, really good preparation over the summer until I didn't. <laughs> and oh. then um, I came into track actually feeling pretty good. The first couple of cups feeling pretty good. But, yeah, then I had some really bad allergies in Wisconsin tried to recover from that and as soon as i started to recover from that feeling good i raced burn i got third and burn which was a good result considering how i was feeling mm. so i was like okay it's on the up and up and then i got sick with a stomach flu um right after burn and before koppenberg mm. and that virus is still in my system so it's like it's frustrating because uh i've been trying to rest and train and it hasn't been going so great so i think that's also affected my breathing too and the lack of being able to actually train <laughs> yeah because i'm just feel awful so yeah that's, um, tough. that's been tough yeah that's been tough bummer so you did yeah. you so you're saying it's still in your system do you have kind of a is there like a light at the end of the tunnel though or um i don't know i got a blood test um before before coxider to see kind of what was going on and i saw that um John, there's a virus in my system and well doctor wasn't sure if it was the end of a virus or the start of another one um, so I need to go back for another blood test in a week or so just to see, Jeez. but like, I don't, I'm not getting sick. So chances are just like an old, like the virus I got, um, in October. So it's just, uh, I mean, it makes sense why I feel so bad and like for the fatigue levels and such, but mm. it doesn't make trying to race and train any, <laughs> any easier for that matter. Yeah. And you, you yeah. continue to race pretty consistently all through November, even though, even though mm-hmm. you were sick, was that a hard decision to make? I mean, not really, because there's always hope that it'll, it'll be better. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, well, maybe this race will be better. And I, I mean, I've had some decent ones. Like, um, there's a couple races where I didn't have bad breathing issues, and I was able to finish okay. Um, Hama was okay, because, like, I think I got seventh. Mm-hmm. And I was just off the lead group, and that was like, okay, maybe I'm starting to come around. But yeah, it's just frustrating. So it's hard to, with the cross-season you know, take four weeks off and rest and start training again because by that point it's Christmas and then you got world nationals and worlds and it's like, well, I can't really just take some time off and prepare again. So yeah. I'm trying to 
rest and race and get better. It's just not happening quickly enough. Hmm. That's tough. So you've been saying you've had trouble with illness this year, first allergies, first allergies, then this virus. Um, I got to think that's making it hard to stay confident ahead of nationals. (laughs) It's a little bit hard to keep confident. Um, and it's tough because like, um, Katie and Ellen are riding well. Um, I think Ellen's probably having her best season yet. And then Katie came in like super strong and she won, um, Iowa world cup and, you know, they're both really good riders. So yeah, it's going to be, I think this is the first year where it's like, it's a, it could go either way. You know, I've had a really good run and I'm really proud of what I've accomplished. And I knew at some point it would get, (laughs) it would get to this point where luck would run out and either I'd struggle fitness wise or, you know, sickness wise, or just my stupid leg pains would come back something where I wouldn't have, you know, a good day for nationals. Um, so, I mean, there's always that chance, like, I'm going to do the best I can and try to rest and prepare as best I can, and then um, we'll see how the day goes. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it is tough to stay confident, but I also know that when I'm on, I'm on. It's just a matter of what my body wants to do that day. And this course in Louisville, mm-hmm. you saw it last year, Pan American mm-hmm. Championships. Mm-hmm. Does it does it suit you? Is this is this is this course going to help you out in this situation where it could go either way? I think so. I like the course. I think it's got a good amount of climbing. It's got um, plenty of power sections, uh, often on the bike. Um, I think it's a good it's a good course. It's going to be um, hard for sure, and it could go either way. I don't know. It could be a fast dry kind of more speedy course or it could be muddy and heavy and just pure torquey power course um it just depends on what kind of weather they get it's you know a little bit earlier in the year so it might be um it could be dry it could be raining it just it kind of just depends on the weather mm-hmm. and i i would, personally like it to be a heavier course because I, I just enjoy heavier courses but yeah it all just depends on the weather Mm-hmm, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and speaking of heavy courses, of course, mm-hmm. Katie Keogh won her first mm-hmm. World Cup on that Iowa City race, which was just mm-hmm. insanely muddy. Um, oh yeah. Tell me about. Tell me about your reaction to to that ride that she had. What did you think? <laughs> that was amazing. Like I was so happy for it because like it was odd feeling because I was having such an awful day and I was I was in a really bad spot. And then I think I was halfway through my last lap and I could hear the announcer, you know, talking about Katie and like hearing Katie's going to win. And like I actually slowed down just enough so I could kind of watch her come across the line because I was in the (laughs) I was in the part of the course where I was like far enough back where it didn't matter where I finished. And it was like just enough to see like Katie crossing the line and like hearing it. And it was just like it felt amazing to like be, to see it, to hear it, to like know Katie won her first World Cup, especially in in the U.S. Um, not too far from her hometown, or you know, from mid Midwest where she grew up in Wisconsin. So it was pretty great. And so I just I know the feeling of winning your first World Cup, and it's pretty amazing. So I was really happy for, her, despite the fact that like for me it was just like oh this is another shit day for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> so sure. yeah, it was at least I could I I could be super stoked for her. Yeah, and you guys are pretty mm-hmm. close. You ride together down mm-hmm. in Colorado Springs, and that's so yeah. that contributes yeah. to it as well. Uh, yeah, so it's like seeing your little sister win. So <laughs> that's <be> great. Cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I so I got to think. You know, like I was kind of implying, you know, if mm-hmm. it gets muddy, if it gets heavy at Louisville, mm-hmm. 
I got to think you would have your eye on Katie Keogh as a real threat, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. And she's a really good runner. Um, she's definitely a better run- runner than I am. So, yeah, that's the thing is it's mighty good. It could go either way. And, like, Ellen is good in the mud, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and just depends on how she's feeling. So it's uh, – I think – the women's race is going to be super exciting i hope i have a good day that would be great <laughs> yeah um but uh yeah it can go either way depending again i think it just depends on the weather certain courses suit me better suit sir katie better ellen better so it just depends mm-hmm. what, what do you think would be the type of course that would suit ellen a little better um Muddy, but not not like super heavy muddy, because she's got a good she's got a good turn of speed and good sprint. Mm. Um, so something where it's uh, it's mud, but not like running mud. A little more slip and slide type situation. Yeah, yeah. Where <laughs> uh, she can so use her speedy power. Right, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic uh, considering <laughs> the three of you as the favorites, because you know, uh, Katie, Katie Keo, and Ellen have both predominantly raced in the u.s so far this mm-hmm. season so i you haven't seen a lot of them in first person up until the no. last couple of world's cups yeah do you do you have any way of kind of keeping tabs on them or is that just the sort of thing where you deal with it when you show up at the race um i've raced against them enough to know strengths and weaknesses and then i know they're both riding well so for me it's like i know that and i i just think of like okay well what what can i do to win the race like what's my strength what what do i need to do to beat them racing um and so like i just kind of go back to that like what i can do and what suits Mm. my my strength and my power knowing that you know i just pretend they're going to come up come in feeling really good and having a great day and in that case what are they going to do well and how can i you know how can I beat that? Exactly. <laughs> so that's kind of the way I approach it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Could you think of any other riders we should be talking about when we talk about the favorites for U.S. Nationals? Um, that's um, tough because I haven't, I haven't been racing U.S. races, mm-hmm. honestly. I, and um, I've been paying attention a little bit, like through Twitter and like watching like race results. But unless you see the race and like know what happened during it mm-hmm. it's hard to tell who's riding well um or if it's conditions or if they have mechanicals or whatnot um i think sonny gilbert's been riding really well she's had some good results she has um, yeah yeah um courtney mcfadden as long as her hips are okay i think she crashed and hurt herself it's a race not too long ago but i think she's done okay um yeah, and she's she had, had some good races yeah she had a pretty good um, result at pan americans uh championship yeah, she was a yeah. fourth there yeah yeah so i mean um those are always good and becca farringer she's i think learning every race and still getting a little bit faster each race so you know she always have a good one too mm-hmm. well yeah it should be uh it should be an exciting one and it's um definitely mm-hmm. an interesting dynamic being as the races are in, in December. So hopefully that means mm-hmm. we'll see a few more of the top Americans going over for the Christmas races. Yeah, I think so. I'm not quite sure what people are going to do if they're going to come over for Christmas and then just stay through worlds or, you know, come over Christmas and then fly back and forth. I think it's better for us that nationals are in December. Now we can just go to Europe and prepare for net for worlds. But if you're not used to staying over there for six weeks, it could be a little bit difficult yeah definitely you got to be pretty well set up for that to work out yeah you got to be set up or you have to be set up and then you know be able to go to someplace south for warm training in Mm -hmm. spain or i don't know yeah or something yeah if you're you've made money (laughs) yeah right 
bike racers always are. Yeah, yeah. Seriously. <laughs> Mm-hmm. All right. Well, cool, Katie. This is good, to, good info, and I hope you start feeling better. So Thanks. Me too. Come around in time for nationals. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. I've been lucky. I've been lucky a lot of years, so I'm like, it, it might just swing back. I'm hoping yeah. it does. Yeah, still a lot of racing left. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Cool. Well, um, thanks again. Yep, no problem. I'll talk to you soon. Well, Dane, it sounds like we should have some exciting racing to watch for at uh, Cyclocross Nationals. Yeah, both men's and women's. Looking forward to it. Definitely. So stay tuned to VeloNews.com for full coverage of USS Cycling's Cyclocross National Championships. And that's coming up in just a couple weeks in Louisville, Kentucky, the weekend of December 15th and 16th. Thanks for listening to the Velo News Podcast, and we will see you next week. (laughs) 